Welcome to Horror Nights In Podcast. Scary movies. Uh Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Here's Johnny! You're gonna need a bigger boat. The boogeyman is real. And you found him. guys and welcome to this episode of horror nights and podcasts with your one and only host me crystal i also have my wonderful co-host with me the one and only roxy the kitty who adds in her comments here and there depending on the topic i upload a new podcast every monday at noon eastern standard time So on this podcast, we talk about my life, my favorite horror movie of the week that you guys pick, and anything else horror. So thank you for being here. I also challenge all of you listening to leave me an iTunes review. It not only helps my days better, it also helps other horror fans find me. You can find me on my socials on Twitter at Horror Daddies R Us, Instagram at Horror Nights and Podcast, on Tumblr Horror Nights and Podcast, and on YouTube Horror Nights and Podcast. So be sure to follow me on there for the latest Horror Nights in news. Also, be sure to stick around till end of the show. I'm actually going to be doing an honest and horrific opinion on J.P. Willie's book called Blood in the Woods. And also his uh, short film called Cry Baby Bridge, a Louisiana urban legend. So stick around to the end for that. I'm also going to be talking about something that is very hot on my Twitter at the moment. Um, the crime junkie plagiarism scandal that's been going around. So stick around to the end of the episode because we are going to get into that. So on this episode of Horror Nights in Podcast, we are delving into the 2009 horror film, Friday the 13th. Obviously, this film is a remake. I'll be giving you the Rotten Tomatoes, the IMDb score, then delving deep into the plot characters and my overall honest and horrific opinion of the film. So Rotten Tomatoes gave this film a 25% with 46% of the audience liking it. IMDb gave it a 5.5 out of 10. So, Friday the 13th was released February 13th, 2009, with a running time of 98 minutes. It was written by Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, and it was directed by Marcus Nisplay, who also directed the 2003 version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This film stars one of my favorites, Jared Pedlucky, who is one of the actors from Supernatural. So the IMDb short synopsis of this film is a group of young adults discover a boarded up Camp Crystal Lake where they soon encounter Jason Voorhees and his deadly intentions. So now I'm going to play you a short clip from the trailer. Did you know a young boy drowned here? to my headphone users from now on i'm definitely gonna have to put a little disclaimer in there for you guys right before i play the trailer because i just played the entire trailer back and i do apologize for that so i'm definitely gonna give you guys a warning before that happens all right so that was the trailer so before we get into the bread and butter uh, of this episode the reason i kind of want to talk about the reason why i picked this version So the reason behind why I picked the 2009 version is actually, um, is because this was the first Friday the 13th film I ever saw in its entirety. Also, if you listen to my other episodes, you know that I love young adults in the woods getting themselves into deadly situations. I did watch Jason X, uh, shortly after this film. 
instantly regretted it. But I feel like as a horror community, we sort of let that one go. Um, I know there's a couple other Jason films and a few other horror films that we probably could, you know, just let go. But that's another podcast for another day. Um, So jumping right into the film, we have our iconic Jason Voorhees theme music, and we are introduced to a short remake of the original Friday the 13th with Pamela Voorhees getting her head chopped off with a machete by the last survivor of the counselors, and then a young Jason Voorhees finding his headless mother, taking the machete and a necklace that she was wearing. We then get our first group of young, horny adult hikers hiking in the woods, but it looks like they're getting lost. This is our map holder. There's our map holder who is reassuring his friends that not everything shows up on a GPS and to just trust him. So the main character and sister of Jared Pedlucky, Whitney, seems to be a little out of it as they're walking to their campsite, but it's not clear on why. We then find out they were looking for a lot in the woods where weed is apparently planted or where it's growing. Our friend who is haggling him to find the weed suggests they stop there, camp for the night, go out in the morning, find the weed, then ditch it in the truck and be back before breakfast. So I have to assume that the others might not know the true intentions of their camping trip is to find weed, sell it, and be rich. It is now dark and the friends are around a campfire when one friend runs up to tell runs up to them and tells them he found the broken down cabins, but his friends are not interested. He then gives his friends a quick rundown on the first Friday the 13th when a woman who went nuts killed a bunch of counselors before her mentally challenged, because her mentally challenged son drowned in their care. He then explains how the last counselor who survived cut her head off and how her son Jason came back and how the cops were looking for him, but they never found him at, of course, the iconic Camp Crystal Lake. I truly think it was my destiny to love horror, and my parents never knew that naming me Crystal would amount to this. Also, for those of you who don't know, I was born on November 13th, but unfortunately, it was a Sunday. Of course, every several years, my birthday does fall on a Friday. So back to the film. We get the view from the camera that someone or something is watching them from behind some trees. The group continues to talk about Jason and the woods while Whitney and her boyfriend go off to talk somewhere. She confesses to him that she doesn't feel right being away from her mom, who I assume is sick. Her boyfriend reassures her that her mom is fine and they are just there to have fun. Back with the rest of the group, they realize they were reading the GPS wrong and they're only half a mile away from the weed. But the one friend is a little distracted when his girlfriend starts taking off her top directly behind the other friend. So... With Whitney and her boyfriend off wandering the woods and the other couple getting down and dirty in their tent, our last lone friend is looking for the weed and also a place to pee. While he's peeing and listening to music with his headphones in, he looks down and sees that he has found the green stuff, expresses his love by smelling it and telling the plants he loves them. He then hears a noise looks up and sees a very tall and huge figure with some kind of cloth over its face and starts running to him. He screams and we hear the iconic slash of Jason's machete. Back with Whitney and her boyfriend, they have stumbled upon the very rundown and abandoned entrance to Camp Crystal Lake and Whitney doesn't feel right about entering, but they go anyway and they stumble upon a dilapidated cabin. The boyfriend wants to have some fun and convinces Whitney to be adventurous. Inside the cabin, there is old food, a broken TV, an old piano, whistles for the counselors, old bikes, and the boyfriend happens to open a jewelry box to find none other than the locket that belonged to Jason's mother that we saw in the first scene. The boyfriend opens the locket, and we see that a younger version of Jason's mom is in there, sort of looks like Whitney, and he tells her she should keep it. They then wander into the back part of the cabin and find a bed and a room belonging to a little kid. The boyfriend then passes the flashlight over the headboard, and it says, Jason. He then remembers the same name from the story, and Whitney becomes extremely uncomfortable and really wants to leave. Back with our couple inside the tent, they start hearing things and assume it's their lone friend watching them. The boyfriend throws on some clothes and goes to investigate and tell his lone friend to leave them alone and stop being a perv. 
Inside the tent, the girl is totally freaking herself out waiting for him to come back as she continues to hear branches snapping around her as if someone is walking towards her. Richie, the boyfriend, stumbles upon the weed his friend found earlier, but then he spots the glow stick that his friend was carrying with him into the woods and starts looking for his friend. He then spots a single sliced ear with a headphone in it. He then looks up and sees his friend dead, leaning against a tree with his ear missing. So back with a girlfriend who's still in the tent and is getting more paranoid, we see Jason's shadow on the tent behind her. As soon as she notices, Jason slices the tent and pulls her out. Richie is now running back to his girlfriend to see to see she is now tied up in a sleeping bag hanging from a tree branch right above their campfire. As Richie is trying to, trying to run and save her, his foot gets trapped in a bear trap. Unable to save her, she falls out of the burning sleeping bag and is clearly dead. Back with Whitney and her boyfriend still inside the cabin, he goes into the bathroom and sees some string lights hung up hanging from the shower curtain and just a wall of candles leading up to a hole in the wall. He then thinks it would be a good idea to stick his hand into the hole to see what was in there and he pulls out the head of what we can assume is Jason's mother. They then hear the door slam behind them. He is now crawling on the ground to look, the boyfriend is now crawling on the ground to look under the door, but then Jason is under the floorboard, stabbing his machete at their feet. Whitney is now in the bathtub to protect herself from Jason's underground tunnel, but her boyfriend is getting stabbed left and right on the floor. Jason then pulls back the boards from the floor and pulls the boyfriend under as he is telling Whitney to run. She is now on the run, and we see Jason pop up from underneath the porch and start chasing her. She is now running blindly through the trees, and the castle... I'm sorry. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) She is now running blindly through the trees and the dark and finds her campsite and sees Richie still in the bear trap after checking to see if the other girl is dead. Whitney is now with Richie, trying to get his foot out of the bear trap, but then Jason is running towards them and slices his machete right onto the top of Richie's head and pushes him with his foot to retrieve his machete. Whitney is now crawling backwards, and the last thing we see before the screen goes black is Jason running towards her with his machete ready. I don't really know why I just said castle. <laughs> I think I'm just trying to read it and make sure I don't miss any lines. So you're definitely there's definitely not a castle in this movie. Um Okay, so anyway, in the next scene, we meet our second group of young, horny adults stopping at a local general store. We have Lawrence, Nolan, Jenna, Trent, Bree, and Chelsea. So it's the stereotypical entourage of young adults, the hippie guy, the black guy, the preppy douche, the funny Asian, the slutty girls, and the innocent, and the one innocent, good-hearted girl. So please do not take offense to any of these labels. I mean no harm at all. If you listen to my other podcasts, you know that I do my best to use a character's name and not their ethnicity or any stereotypes. So the same goes for this one. I will be using their names. I will not be using what they look like. I just wanted to clarify that is this is the very stereotypical group of young adults that many writers and directors and producers unfortunately put together. Um... It's not, unfortunately, it's great um, that there is such diversity in a cast, um, but unfortunately, it is a very stereotypical way to say their name. So, I mean, if I was in a, if I was in a horror movie, I feel like my stereotype would be, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I'm slutty enough to be a slutty girl, so I guess I would have to be the innocent, good-hearted girl, but... <laughs> I don't really think I'm not really that innocent, but I don't know. Who knows? Um, anyway, uh, moving on. So I will use their names. Um, so the friends enter the store and we see our main character, Clay, who's played by Jared Pedlecki, is talking to the cashier about his sister that went missing a month and a half ago. We see that Trent and Jenna are standing behind Clay in line. Clay then shows the cashier the flyer he wants to put in the window and we see that it's Whitney. Trent, still behind him, is getting impatient and rudely asks Clay if he's going to buy something. Clay then gives him a look and steps aside. The two then exchange some words and Clay goes to leave. Jenna, seeing the whole thing, apologizes to Clay. The group is now back in their Escalade and are off to Trent's parents' cabin in the woods. As they drive away, Clay puts his flyer under the back windshield wiper of the Escalade. 
The group then passes a line of mailboxes, then a sign that reads, Welcome to Camp Crystal Lake. So back of the clay, we see his main form of transportation is actually a motorcycle as he is getting pulled over by a cop who knows who Clay is and says, Welcome back, Clay. The officer then explains how Clay doesn't think he did a good job about the investigation of his missing sister. He then goes on to explain there was no evidence of the group ever being at Crystal Lake, no cars, no witnesses, not a trace was left behind. The officer assumes Whitney and the boyfriend took off together, to which Clay laughs and says his mother just died of cancer and how Whitney would take care of her every single day, and then never showed up for his mother's funeral. The officer then tells him to look elsewhere because his sister is not at Camp Crystal Lake. Back with our group, they have arrived at their cabin house in the woods. We are immediately made aware that there is no call service, service, um, there's no cell service, when one girl looks down at her phone. They all go inside this very expensive and very well-furnished home and make themselves at home. Meanwhile, Clay decides to stop at a house, clearly lived in by a hoarder. He goes up to the screen door and starts knocking, says hello, but no one is answering. He then reaches down into his bag for a flyer and is met with the barking of a big black German shepherd on the other side of the screen door. An older woman then appears from behind the dog and Clay asks if he has seen, if she has seen his missing sister. The older lady then tells Clay his sister isn't missing, she is dead, and how people, and how when people go missing around there, they're gone for good. She then chillingly says, we all want to be left alone, and so does he. We can assume when she says he, she means Jason. She then closes the door and walks away. Back with our group of friends, they are playing some drinking games because why not? Drink then com- Trent then comes in and yells at them for spilling, spilling beer all over the stained oak floor. He then ventures outside to where Jenna is sitting, looking onto the lake. Jenna then suggests they go on a hike for some exercise, but Trent decides it's better to practice some different kind of exercise. Jenna then pushes him off and laughs as she walks away. We are now with Clay again as he is approaching another local who is operating a tree shredder. Clay then startles him and asks if he has seen his sister, but this guy hasn't. But before Clay leaves... He tells him that someone has been stealing his kerosene and also if he wanted to buy any weed because he found a ton growing in the woods. Clay declines and then leaves. Jenna is now helping Trent clean out the Escalade that was full of trash and empty chip bags from the friends and then calls Trent out for even inviting all these people if he's angry that they're so messy. They then get interrupted by Nolan and Chelsea who are going to see the other side of the lake. Chelsea invites them, but Nolan is behind her shaking his head no because apparently he wants to be alone with her instead and trying to prove and trying to prove Jenna wrong, Trent then lets him borrow his Escalade to get there. He also asks them to take the gas cans down to this family boat. He then warns Noah not to drive the boat. Of course, we all know that Nolan is going to drive the boat. Jenna is now inside and hears a knock on the door and it's Clay, not realizing the house that he's actually at. Jenna then asks if he has had any luck finding his sister when she see, and then she asks to see the flyer. She then invites Clay in for a drink, even though he knows Trent is probably around somewhere. Breathing spots, Jenna has brought in another guy to Trent's house and offers him a beer. Trent then takes back the beer and basically kick Clay, kicks Clay out. Jenna then tells Trent to calm down and walks Clay outside. She asks where he's off to next and asks if he wants any company. Honestly, I love Jared Bedlucky, so I fully understand why she is smitten. So we are now back with a guy who wanted to sell Clay weed. He is back in... He's back in some barn-type office thing and is weighing out the weed he just picked while also smoking a joint. He then hears someone walking on the upper part of the barn and grabs a wrench to see who or what is up there. So this whole area up there looks like it used, it's being used for some kind of storage. There's old bikes, Christmas decorations, things with sheets over them. He then spots something under one of those sheets and pulls it down to reveal a mannequin who he apparently talks to. We then see something move behind him out of focus, and it's Jason. He's slowly creeping up on Donnie. 
So Donnie, hearing a creak behind him, swings his wrench, but Jason knocks it out of his hand, grabs him by the collar, pushes him back, takes out his machete, and slices Donnie's neck. But before Jason killed him, Donnie was able to take a couple swings, and it knocks Jason's mask off. After Donnie is dead, Johnny goes to retrieve his sheet mask, but something catches his eye in that old barn. A hockey mask. Jason, being the icon that he is, puts the mask on, walks over to the mirror, and we can see his reflection. And of course, the iconic Jason music begins playing. So back with Chelsea and Noah, Noah Nolan, they are at the... Sorry, guys. I must be very tired today. It is currently Friday. I've been at work all week. I actually have to leave for my other job in 10 minutes. So I apologize that I am tripping over my words. And thank you for understanding. Okay. So back with Chelsea and Nolan, they are at the boat dock getting ready to go water seeing and they're teasing each other. Now back with uh, Jenna and Clay, we are walking through the woods talking about his sister. We get a little backstory that Clay actually left home at 17 and Whitney stayed behind with her mother. And the last interaction they had was when she asked him to show up to meet her, but he never did. But then something catches his eye on the grounds and it's a GPS, the one that Whitney's friend was using right before he was killed. Now, I want to pause for a second here and call BS on either the storyline or the police officer. If you remember, the officer said he had search parties and two veteran veteran officers on the case of Clay's missing sister, and no one could find a trace that they were even out there, but Clay just so happens to find a GPS in about two seconds. Anyways, <laughs> um, the two continue on their walk. We are now back with Nolan and Chelsea, who are water skiing. Nolan is driving the boat while Chelsea is water skiing like a pro, and of course, she's topless. So back at the cabin house, the remaining friends, Chewy, Lawrence, Trent, and Bree, are playing beer pong. It then cuts back to Nolan and Chelsea, with Chelsea flying off the skis and into the water. Seeing this, Nolan circles back to where to go get her, but before he can do that, he is hit through the head with an arrow. The boat is now speeding towards Chelsea, who is still in the water, but because Nolan is dead, the boat barrels right into Chelsea, hitting her on the side of the head. The camera then pans over to the side, and into the woods we see Jason is watching Chelsea. She is now gushing blood and spots Jason standing off the bank of the river as he takes out his machete. So, Jenna and Clay continue walking. They enter into Camp Crystal Lake, and we know this because we see the sign. Back with a very scared and bleeding Chelsea, she is now hiding under the dock, still in the water, with Jason directly above her. We then get the iconic kill shot with Jason driving his machete through the top of her head and then pulling it out, the machete with the help of the dock. Chelsea's eyes roll in the back of her head and she sinks into the lake. It's now dark and Jenna and Clay are armed with flashlights, are checking out one more cabin before leaving. Inside the last cabin, which I believe is the same one that Jason's bed is in, has old toys and trophies around. This is also the same cabin that Whitney was in with her boyfriend. Jenna then then tells Clay he should call the police, but Clay answers her and tells her that the police stopped looking for her a long time ago. Just then, Jenna's foot falls through the old floorboard and they get out of there fast. As they are leaving, Clay's flashlight goes out and he stops to change the batteries, but then they hear a tree branch snap behind them. They then see a shadow and run and hide. Jason is now making his way through the old camp with something large over his shoulder. He then stops and spots Clay's bag. He's left behind and walks over to it. Jason then throws down the headless body right next to where Clay and Jenna are hiding under some canoes, picks up the bag, then throws it into the ground before turning towards the cabin and flipping a switch that turns on huge floodlights. He then starts pushing over the canoes one by one, but the two were now behind a tree. Jason then gives up, grabs the body and the bag, and heads off towards the cabin. I feel like he's thinking, I'll get them later. Curious Clay decides he needs to get closer and see where he is going, even though Jenna is begging for him to leave. The two are now 
Running back towards the cabin house to warn the others, but on the way, Jenna's foot trips a wire that is connected to a little bell underground. And in this underground, we see that Whitney is very much alive and being held by Jason. She hears the bells and screams help, but unfortunately, Clan Jenna can't hear her. A hatch then opens, and we see Jason drop down carrying Clay's bag and the body and making his way to Whitney. He then passes Whitney, drops the bag, and carries the body to come back to some back room. Whitney is able is able to grab her brother's bag and see that inside there are flyers he's been handing out. She then goes through the rest of the bag to find something useful. She finds the GPS, pops open the back, and finds a long piece of metal to help open the chains around her wrist. But before she can unchain herself, Jason is back. He grabs her throat and pulls out her necklace, which is his mother's, opens it, and looks at it. Whitney then tells Jason it's okay and even calls him by his name, which causes him to snap up, look at her, before he turns and walks off. Jenna and Clay are now trying to find their way back to the cabin house, but now we see that Jason is right on their heels. Back at the house, the four friends are still partying and drinking. Trent is looking out the window, and Chewie is trying to shoot his shot with Bree with a flaming shot. Bree then suddenly, seductively shows him how to blow up the shot, but he instead burns his mouth, flies backwards, and breaks Trent's dad's chair. Trent then tells him to go to the tool, the tool shed to get the tools from his dad's tool shed that's right down the path and fix the chair. Bree then takes this as an opportunity to seduce Trent. On the way to the tool shed, Chewie spots a pretty decent-sized bug zapper. He then finds the huge tool shed, which is also a storage place for Trent's dad's expensive scotch, to which Chewie helps himself. So now we have Lawrence in the living room alone, Chewie in the, shred, in the shed, and Trent and Bree in the bedroom. Jenna and Clay then run into the house, scaring Lawrence and trying to warn everybody about the guy who's carrying the dead bodies. Clay then runs and finds the phone to call the police, while Jenna is trying to get everyone out of the house into safety. But Trent and Bree decide to ignore her and tell her to go away. Back with Chewie, who is messing around with stuff in the tool shed, he finds a hockey stick and accidentally hits the light out with the end of the stick. It is now almost completely dark in the shed. Chewie bends down to pick up a piece of the light he broke and sees, and we see Jason is standing right behind him. Chewie is assuming it's one of his friends and hands him the hockey stick telling him it completes his outfit, but Jason, not having it, throws him to the ground and then holds him up against a cork board that has a very long screwdriver. Jason then takes it and shoves it right under Chewie's chin, killing him. Jason is now outside the cabin house, and all the lights go out. Trent and Bree then come out of the bedroom, and Trent spots Clay in his house again and kicks them both out. Lawrence then grabs a fire poker and a walk pan as a shield to go find Chewie, even though Jenna and Clay are warning him not to go out there. Lawrence is trying to find Chewie, but instead finds a trail of blood to a freezer. He opens the freezer, but nothing is inside. But then Joey's Chewie's dead body falls from the ceiling, and of course, Jason is now right behind Lawrence. Jason starts advancing on him, but Lawrence actually gets a couple punches in and stabs him here and there and is able to get out of the shed. But then Jason grabs an axe in a tree stump, throws it, and nails Lawrence right in the back. So back inside the house, Trent is still not believing that anyone or anything is out there to get them. But before he can say anything else, they all hear a dying Lawrence call for help. Jenna tries to go out there to help, but Clay warns her not to because Jason is actually using Lawrence as bait. Jason then comes behind Lawrence, picks him up, and throws him on the ground. Now the axe has punctured through his chest and kills him. So, because Jason can apparently scale walls in seconds in this film, he is now on the roof of their house. Trent then runs upstairs to find a gun and a flashlight. Bree follows him, but can't see where he went since the power is still out. She is now in a small bathroom, and we can see the, the window is slightly open. She then slowly opens the shower curtain, and nothing. But then as the camera turns, we see that Jason is right behind her, grabs her, and puts, her mass puts his massive hands over her face and slams her entire body onto a pair of antlers that were on the bathroom wall. 
We then see that the cops are there, but it's only one police officer. He knocks on the door, and everyone seems to feel better. Jenna and Clay run for the door, but then Jason jumps from on top of the porch and slams the fire poker Lawrence was using into the cop's face as it comes through the door and right where Jenna and Clay were just standing. They are now running up the stairs into the bathroom where Bree was and are scared by the appearance of Trent, who shows them he has a gun, but then unloads an entire round onto nothing. They are now out the front door and they can't find keys to anything, motorcycle, or the cop car. Before they can plan their next move, Bree's dead body comes flying down on top of the cop car, pretty much enabling it useless. All three are now taking off into the woods. Trent then gets separated and trips, and the gun goes flying into a pond of water. Trent then stumbles out onto the road and is almost hit by a pickup truck. He's hesitant to go ask for help, but then we see hands come out the window and wave him to come see him. Trent slowly makes his way up to the truck, but before he can see that it's only an old man, he is stabbed to the chest by Jason. The old man is basically like, fuck this, but before he drives off, Jason shoves Trent's body onto the back of the pickup through some hard metal. So with only Jenna and Clay left, they are now back at the same cabin, and Whitney hears them and yells for help. Clay is able to find the hatch in the floor that opens to Jason's underground tunnels. The two are now wandering around trying to find where the screaming is coming from and are finally able to find Whitney, but she is still chained up. Clay then finds an axe and on the third try is able to break the chains, but Jason is coming and knows they are getting away. They then hit a dead end, but Clay spots a place where they can crawl through to get out. But before Clay can pull Jenna to safety, Jason finds them and sends his machete right through Jenna's chest. Jason then pulls her dead body out of the hole and lunges towards Clay and Whitney, but they are getting away fast and hit a kerosene lamp which smashes on the ground and the tunnel explodes in fire. Whitney then spots a ladder and goes up and they are inside an old bus that's turned on its side and are able to get one of the doors open. Clay jumps up first. As he is helping Whitney, we see Jason come behind him and pull him backwards off the bus and start smashing his head into each one of the windows. Clay is now unconscious and Whitney is trying to get away from Jason, but Jason is now inside the bus again with her. Whitney is now hiding and Jason is an inch away from her and she kicks him square in the head. And he flies backwards, which allows her to get away, but Jason grabs onto her feet. She is able to successfully kick in him in the head a few more times. Clay then regains consciousness and helps Whitney get out of the bus, and of course, it is now torrentially downpouring rain. They find the same barn from earlier with the tree shredder, uh, to which Clay tells, them, tells her to hide. Clay, armed with a hunting knife, is slowly walking around the barn and grabs a sickle. But as he turns, Jason is right behind him through is right behind him through a window and crashes into Clay. Clay is able to stab him in the arm a couple times and is able to get away. Jason, being the MMA fighter that he is and a wall scaler, is dodging hits left and right from Clay and an axe. After pushing each other all over the barn, one of them hits the button on the tree shredder. Jason is now pushing Clay's face into the blades as a shredder of the shredder, but before he can shred Clay's beautiful face, Whitney calls, comes out of her hiding place, calls Jason's name, and holds up his mother's locket. Jason throws Clay aside while Whitney tells him it's okay and he can stop now. As Jason is walking towards Whitney, Clay is able to grab a bear trap and chain and wrap it around Jason's neck, to which Whitney throws the other end of the chain into the shredder, causing it to hang Jason for a few minutes. But then the chain is pulling him into the shredder, and we can see that he is able to stop it briefly, but then Whitney grabs his machete and runs it through his chest. It is now the next morning, and they have pushed Jason's body back into Crystal Lake along with his mother's locket. But because Crystal Lake is healing powers for Jason, he jumps back up from the dock boards and grabs Whitney. Whitney screams, and the film ends. Alrighty, so now we're going to move on to just some facts about the movie, um, a couple Easter eggs, and just a lot of things that I read online um, on Wikipedia that I actually had no idea um, went into making the creation of this movie. So um, with 
$42.2 million. They had the biggest opening weekend of a horror remake, beating out former record holder The Grudge in 2004. Um, this was actually the first time Paramount had any association with Friday the 13th series since 1989. The film was released Friday, February 13th, uh, 2009. It just so happens that February, March, and November all had a Friday the 13th in 2009, So, which is funny because... If in the beginning of the episode, I talked to you about how my birthday is actually November 13th. So when this film was released a couple months after it, my birthday had been on Friday the 13th in 2009. Um, so the film setting, which is New Jersey, is a homage to the original film being filmed in New Jersey, too. Um, if you listen to my other podcast, you know I actually grew up in New Jersey, too. So this movie definitely has a lot of connections to me. <laughs> um so a couple other things I want to talk about. So the first Easter egg, uh, one, you can see a wheelchair and a sweater in Jason's tunnels during the film, if looking closely. The character of Mark was a paraplegic who was killed by Jason in Friday the 13th Part 2 in 1981. And Mrs. Voorhees wore the sweater in the original version of Friday the 13th, which came out in 1980. Uh, Clay and Whitney's, the, the two main characters, brother and sister, uh, their last name is Miller. This is a reference to Victor Miller, who is the creator of Friday the 13th series in 1980. Um, there's also a theory about the weed in the woods. Many think it might have been Jason luring the teenagers to the woods, but it was never confirmed. Personally, I think Jason was just trying to grow some weed to mellow out after killing all the teenagers, and when the teens come and take his weed, he needs to obviously get rid of them. That's, that's my theory. <laughs> so this is actually my favorite Friday the 13th film because I think the director and writers did such an awesome job on the storyline, the casting, and the character of Jason was executed perfectly. If you listen to my other episodes, you know I love when actors can act without using any words. The iconic Michael Myers head nod, the mass killers in the Stranger Things, only saying the one epic and chilling line at the end, and of course all the different killers in Scream um, before they reveal who they are. They definitely use a lot of body language to taunt their victims. Um, so the same can be said about Jason in this film. He is this heartless, merciless killing machine, but he also is avenging his mother. Now, I'm not saying that killing innocent teens is okay because he is wrong, but a small part of me does feel bad for him. Um, his mother, like, if you just think about it, his mother sent him to the summer camp to have fun and make friends, and then it turns into her her son drowning because the counselors weren't paying attention. So in the original Friday the 13th, in a way, I sympathize with Pamela Voorhees, who just wants revenge on the death of her son. Jason was only 11 years old when he drowned. Uh, he also witnessed the decapitation of his mother from the last surviving camp counselor, Alice Hardy, with the, with the iconic machete. Um... So another thing I wanted to just kind of talk about for a couple seconds is I wonder what Jason was like before he drowned. Um, you know, what kind of relationship did him and his mother have? I kind of pictured Jason and his mother like Constance and Adeline uh, Langdon from American Horror Story from the first season Murder House. Um, that's kind of what I picture. A very protective mom, but always wanting the best for their for their children. I really think that Pamela Voorhees just wanted her son to go to camp and have fun, and then he ended up drowning, and then she had to take revenge because it was her only son. So, I mean, of course, it's <laughs> you should never go kill anybody, but, I mean, the camp counselor should have been paying attention. <laughs> Um, so I was reading Wikipedia on the film, like I mentioned. I was fascinated by the stuntman who actually played uh, Jason, Derek Mears, because he wanted to portray Jason as a victim, which is kind of what I was just talking about. So to Mears, Jason represents people who were bullied in high school, specifically those with um, physical deformities for being outcasts. Uh, Jason is unusual because he exacts his revenge on those trying to take over his territory at Crystal Lake. And if you listen to my other episodes, I sympathize with Michael Myers as well. Now, Myers is portrayed as being the devil, and yes, he did kill his sister, but I still felt bad for him when he, when he was locked in the burning basement of the most recent... Um, a remake of Halloween. <laughs> um, so back to Jason and the time that it took for Mears to be transformed into the killing machine. It took anywhere from one to four hours for the makeup and the prosthetics to be applied, depending on which scene it was. More time for the uncovered face versus the hockey mask face. Um, the effects artists also made sure to add in the key elements that made Jason who he who he was. So the hair loss, the, the skin rashes... Um, and of course his infamous, uh, facial deformities. Um, 
They also added a hump to Mir's back to show Jason having scoliosis, to which I didn't know until I did the research. And I have scoliosis, so <laughs> I just keep finding more and more things about Friday the 13th that are related to me, So, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> um, so Mir's also had a full chest piece that moved with his muscle movements. So for his wardrobe, the costume team picked a military-style jacket with a special effects t-shirt underneath that helped the audience see the makeup special effects. And um, then he was just given a pair of combat boots. So for the mask, the designer, Scott Stoward, used six new kinds of masks. So he said, because I didn't want to take something that already existed, there were things I thought were great, but there were things I wanted to change a bit, make it custom, but keep all the fundamental designs, especially the markings on the forehead and the cheeks, age them down, break them up. According to Wikipedia, when Mears went to audition for the role, he was asked, why do you need an actor as opposed to, a guy, to just a guy in a mask? Mears said portraying Jason is similar to Greek mask work, in which the mask and the actor are separate entities, and depending on the scene, there will be various combinations of mask and actor in the performances. Mears said the energy from the actor's thoughts would be picked up from the camera. He compared his experience behind the camera to a stock race car. Car race. He is the driver and the effects team is his pit crew. As he performs, the effects team subtly suggests ways he can give the character more life on camera, which is a little bit of what I was talking about before um, about how I really do enjoy that kind of acting, how um, the mask and the actor work together, and how they don't really need to use words. They don't. They just need to use their body language and the way they move and the way they tilt their heads and the way that they you know, I'm coming, drawing, coming to mind right now is, um, ghost face from scream. Um, I remember one particular scene when, uh, the killer, he was just taunting with his knife, kind of just like waving it in the air and shining it against the light. So, you know, that's one way to, to draw that kind of fear. Um, so when the writers were starting to write the film, they wanted some ground rules for their cast. They didn't want the friend group to try and figure out what was going on at Crystal Lake or to really care much about what was going on. They just wanted them to go out into the woods, be horny young adults, and look for some weed. The writers also tried to come up with more innovative deaths than just Jason stabbing them with a machete. The original script actually called for Willa Ford's character Chelsea to drown from drowning due to exhaustion when Jason is keeping her stranded in the lake. Danielle Panabacker's character, Jenna, was also supposed to survive Jason's underground lair and die more towards the end of the film instead. The production team also used asylum visual effects to create all those cool kill scenes that Jason did. The first one in the film we see is when Amanda is killed in the sleeping bag. Because the risk to the actor was too great, the visual effects team was able to film a real fire and the sleeping bag scene and mold them together to create what we saw on film. The team also helped with Chelsea's injuries to her head from Trent's boat. Because this stunt would be too dangerous for even a stuntman to do, they had Willa Ford react to a fake boat and then molded those scenes together, which is what we saw in the film. The visual effects team also enhanced Jason's weapons that were used to kill Nolan and Lawrence. Nolan with an arrow and Lawrence with an axe. They were basically able to make it look that much cooler and enhanced as each killing tool flew through the air. So now I want to move on to the nudity and the sex of the movie. It was borderline like watching a porn, but I feel like I've seen worse and I'm looking at you, Hostel and Eli Roth. Um... Apparently, Michael Bay, who was one of the producers on the film, walked out of the theater due to the nudity. So when we look back on the history of horror, and mainly slasher horror, it usually consists of young adults and teens having sex and then getting killed. We've seen it in Halloween, Carrie, and many other horror slasher films. This film was actually ranked number six in Screen Rant's, Screen Rant's article titled 15 Horror Movies Watched for Their Skin More Than Their Scares. The article will be linked in the show notes if you're curious about any of the others. So overall, as I said, Friday the 13th, 2009 is definitely my favorite Friday the 13th movie. I think the storyline is good. It's not great, but it's good. Um, I like the beginning of the film. I believe the beginning of the film, the opener is like 25 minutes long. So it's about 25 minutes until we actually see the title of the film. Um, and I liked that it kind of just like got right into it. Like we got our first little story about the teen, about, you know, the young adults. And then we got the, 
then we got our longer version of the young adults in the woods. Um, I have watched this movie probably five or six times at this point now. Um, obviously I did rewatch it for the podcast and I really, I, I've always just really liked this film and I'm sure it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, the, one of the lead actors in the film is Jerry Pedlecki. But of course, I, I just like seeing Jason in cool movies. Same with Michael Myers, same with any of those iconic, um, you know, masked villains or Freddy Krueger burnt villains. I love seeing in them really cool movies. I love seeing them do more than just you know, stalk people and stab them. I like when they do like those really crazy kill scenes, like, you know, in Halloween when we had all, you know, it was just, there were so many different ways that people died in the movies because of course, after a while it is shocking. Of course it is shocking to see someone get stabbed, you know, with a machete or a knife, but after a while it can be like, okay, like let's do something a little bit different. Um, one scene that comes to mind particular is, you know, in scream when, um, I can't remember the actress's name. Um, but it was, um, Sydney Prescott's best friend, um, when she's going into the garage and she's trying to get out of the little, um, like the little cat door, the little dog door, and then she ends up getting stuck and then the whole garage door just falls on her. Um, that's just, it's just an example of different kills. And the same thing can be said for Jason or for Friday the 13th in this film, you know, when Nolan gets hit in the head with the arrow, which is really cool because who knew that Jason, you know... (laughs) wasn't what do you know archery in his free time um and just it's just cool to see that it was that he was given different different killing tools um so yes i really enjoyed this movie if you have not seen it i would definitely go check it out all right so moving on to um the next part uh, the last part of our podcast So, as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, we are going to be talking about. Well, technically, it's it's um, his his name is Joseph Willie. He is a active duty sergeant, first class serving in the United States Army. Uh, He's also a author, screenwriter, and filmmaker. So, his debut novel, Blood in the Woods, are actually based off of his personal experience that he had dealing with an occult in his hometown of Baptist, Louisiana. Um, so the book was published uh, by Hell- Hellbound Book Publishing in 2017. The novel is a semi-fictitious retelling of his childhood and the true crimes committed within the Hosanna Church in... I'm going to screw this name up because I do not know how to pronounce it. Uh, Ponchatoula, Louisiana. I'm sorry, JP, if I said that wrong. Um, Since then, the reviews have been great, and he attracted much attention from the uh, horror community. Um, He is retiring from the military in next year, 2020, and his goal is to become the next new literary name in horror and dark fiction, as well as a respected and honorable screenwriter and director. Um, So he sent me a ton of links. and I will definitely have um, the best ones linked for you in the show notes. So he has this book that I explained, but he also sent me a link to his short horror film called Crybaby Bridge, a Louisiana urban legend. Um, so it was made with absolutely no budget, and it's 100% indie. Um, he wanted the film to look old-school B-rated with shaky cameras, low-budget audio, offset angles, and a cast of first-time actors. Um, but he wanted to tell a good story, um, have it be sexy, funny, and deliver a killer soundtrack. So I actually watched it. It's 11 minutes long, and I will have it linked for all of you. And I have to say, guys, it was pretty freaking good um there's i really urge you all to go watch it um i'm gonna have it linked for you so you can go check it out it's only 11 minutes long um i watched it yesterday and it was really good there was a couple jump scares in there that were pretty scary um the story was told really well i think that for being first-time actors the main actress um I think she she's Asian, I believe. I apologize if I'm getting any of this wrong. This is just my, you know, first time watching it, my first impression kind of thing. Um, and 
she was really good. I really liked watching her. But everybody in it was really good. I thought the I thought the editing, the camera angles, the sound was good. Um, I know he was going for a more you know gritty B-rated kind of thing, but I think he did a really great job. Um, so it, give him you know give him some views. Let him go go check it out. It's really good. Um, I actually have a link for the book too if you guys want to check that out. Um, I, I don't know, guys. I was really impressed by it. Like, JP, like, you definitely have some talent, and I'm super excited to see what else you have coming um, for the rest of your career, especially, you know, he's going to be out of the military next year, so he definitely will be able to have more time to create. So I'm really excited about this, and I want to, I told him, I was like, we got to stay in contact because I really want to know, you know, how you continue to, to, to progress. And I want to read his book too. So, um, yeah, guys, I'm going to link everything in the show notes. Um, I'm going to link all, uh, everything that I talked about, all the sources, give credit to everybody I talked about. Um, and also give credit to all the ideas and the theories that I had. Um, and of course, um, you know, just make sure you credit all your sources. (laughs) All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Horror Nights in Podcast with your one and only host, me, Crystal, and my co-host, Roxy, who's actually laying right next to me right now. I don't know if you heard her before. She moved a little bit. Um, If you enjoyed this episode, go listen to another one, binge it out, leave me a review on iTunes, and have the best week ever wherever you are and whatever you do. And remember to always give your honest and horrific opinion no matter what. All right, guys, I will see you later this week. Uh, I know I said I was going to talk about the crime junkie um, scandal with the plagiarism, but I actually wanted to make it into a short mini episode. So I'm going to try and record it this week. I have a really busy week. My sister is actually leaving for Pitt, um, the University of Pittsburgh. So my family and I are definitely super busy this week, but I'm going to do my best. And uh, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Horror Daddies R Us to keep up with all things Horror Nights in. And um, all right, guys, have a great week. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you and you'll hear my voice next week or hopefully later this week with the other one all right bye guys